0: Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana. I'm here with James Heathers. And we are joined by two very special guests, Chris Chabrie, who was a cognitive scientist who was taught at Union College and Harvard University, and Dan Simons, who was a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois. And together, they have co-authored Nobody's Fool, which is a new book on why we get taken in and what we can do about it. Uh, before we get into the book, I first want to congratulate the both of you on on co-authoring one of the few studies that is regularly taught in in, in introductory psych that actually replicates. I'm talking about the it's just it's just you and the strip test. I'm I'm talking about the. <laughs> <laughs> there's not much. The the cupboard is bare. It's just, people just rock up and they they can only teach two things. I'm talking about the uh the invisible gorilla study, which is actually the um the, the, the title of, of of your earlier book. But I want to talk about the invisible gorilla. Where where is the suit now? This, this thing's this thing's famous. What's it doing right now?
1: It's about six feet in that direction. Six six feet to my <laughs> yeah. right. Uh, right. In a box in my closet, uh, I well, as as you may know, it, we never owned the gorilla suit. It was borrowed from uh, borrowed, borrowed in, in quotes, quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, borrowed in quotes from Jerry Kagan's developmental psychology lab. Um, where I believe he used it to sort of scare infants and see how they, how they reacted. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in the and, um, tradition of
0: psychology, of course. Yes, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah I, I don't know whether that replicates or not, but uh, <laughs> when we gave it back at the end of the experiment, I guess Dan gave it back. And then years later, actually, uh, Kagan was retiring and the department was closing down and cleaning out his lab. And I saw this closet in the basement full of stuff, and there was a box that said gorilla suit. And if I hadn't been there uh, at the no. right time at the right place, it might have gone to the garbage bin or something like that. Oh so I I saved it. What and a stroke We are waiting for the Smithsonian to call, uh, <laughs> requesting you know re- requesting the original artifact of uh, replicable psychology studies.
0: Yeah, the falling
2: apart gorilla <laughs> suit.
3: Yeah, yeah, those things ungrateful. unfortunately
2: don't last. I'm on my third of them so far. Yeah.
3: So. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to go, uh, I wanted to go, uh, to the Halloween party that was sadly canceled due to a hospital visit. Um, I was going to get a a gorilla suit and like camouflage netting over the back and actually go as the visible gorilla. So I could, I go whip it over (laughs) like a cape and be an invisible gorilla, fully expecting no one to get the, uh, no one to get the joke. Uh, never even picked it up from the store. I'm waiting for stealth technology to kick in to make it to make it even better. Well, the good news is you actually were
1: there as an invisible gorilla. It turns out, just nobody saw. Yeah, it, it's just, so. it's very well. exactly.
3: Nobody, nobody saw me. Using my famously unobtrusive presence was not actually uh, not actually detected. That's enough about the past, Daniel. Let's talk Where about the book. You, 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 yeah, you guys are you guys are on a tour. You're out there hitting the airwaves, making friends, throwing rocks at strangers, etc. Pressing <laughs> the flesh, trying to trying to get this thing going, and. When you said we should we should definitely go and talk to Wingus and Dingus over here, like, that <laughs> seems like a reasonable idea. And then I read the book and I thought, oh yeah, okay, we should definitely do this. Because if it was shit, I would tell you, you probably both know that by now. Um, Absolutely, man. <laughs> it's 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 really it's really not. The first thing I was imagining was like, how can you turn this into a workbook? It feels like the sort of upstream document to. Be, be able to teach a, a sort of a mid-undergraduate level version of um, a, a kind of a broader understanding of a cognitive bias that doesn't suck as it goes across various different domains. Because the bit, obviously, I enjoyed uh, for, for the most part was the little bits and pieces that come in about business. Like the Bernie Madoff story, I don't think a lot of people have heard like the, the 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 thing with the speech, and I don't want to tell you stories, but that is just such a that and Theranos are two of my absolute favourite all time little business anecdotes. Um, w- w- Dan, let's actually let's see whether or not he's read it. Why don't you tell us whether or <laughs> not uh, whether or not that's a, a part of the darity that you remember, Mister Katana?
0: I actually like the the, the possibility grid that that uh, possibility, possibility grid that you introduced. And I found a lot of the way through the book, I was just kind of nodding along, especially that bit where um, you talk about as scientists, when you do a particular analysis and everything works, you're like, this is great. My code is working wonderfully. But as soon as the analysis doesn't work, you're rechecking, you're checking the version of R that you use and you're redoing all those things. So, the fact that we, we're when something happens that we agree with, we're not we're not very critical. Or when something happens that that is consistent with 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 what our thoughts or attitudes are, um, that 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 really struck me. But what was so interesting is this idea that that even scientists can get fooled. Like, why do you think that happens? We're, we're meant to be the smart ones. Why do, why do scientists e- equally as 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 <laughs> prone to getting fooled as as, as everyone else?
2: You know, it, it's funny. I mean, I've, I've talked to some magicians who say that uh, scientists and academics are the easiest ones to fool because they can give you a false explanation, set up a false explanation for you to figure out right? for how they're doing their trick. And once you've locked onto that as a critical thinker, you don't let go of it, right? So, it's like, I've got it. And he hasn't ruled it out yet. So, that must be what it is. And by the time you realize that that's not it, you're lost. You have no chance of finding out how they actually did it. So, we're really good at zeroing in on what we currently believe and being critical about things that we disbelieve, um, but skeptics are can be fooled just as easily if you are targeting them in particular.
1: I I'd go so far as to say that a lot of scientists don't actually think like scientists most of the time. Like they have the identity of scientist and the label of a scientist, but they don't necessarily adopt a truly scientific approach a lot of the time. And and the the first way we introduce that is uh, as as mentioned is. When we talk about the concept of expectations and predictions and we sort of naturally sort of tend to drop our skepticism when our predictions are confirmed and the data come in the way we expect, especially if, um you know, especially if the results are somehow novel or pleasing or slightly counterintuitive or whatever, then it's almost like sort of one ceases to be a scientist at that point, you know, and one sort of turns into something else. I don't know exactly what, it depends on the situation, right? But there are a depressingly large number of scientists who don't really seem to think like scientists when they're doing their work. And I'm not going to name any names, but I think everyone can think of cases that appear to be like that based on what we've learned.
3: That's perfectly all right. We've got another 160 episodes where <laughs> we name names things so. like uh, that. Perfectly (laughs) civilized. Interesting. I wrote down exactly the same point as as Dan on the sort of the the notes of things that uh, uh, elements that I appreciated. I suppose is like the inability of people to ask the question: "Am I right for the wrong reasons?" And it is such a simple idea, and people run roughshod over it as a concept. I think honestly, this. It also part of it is. I mean, this is a, a point that you made as well. It was something of a drive-by, but it's another very good one. It's exhausting. You said, "Well, let's 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 express appropriate skepticism towards all things." Go, oh, well, that sounds like work, man. That really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> does. It's also
1: socially unacceptable a lot of the time to be the person who is constantly questioning and. I've even been in in seminars and departments where the norm seems to be to not ask tough questions, you know, in academic departments, which is a bit of a change. I think that's been changing over time, at least in my experience. But you sort of get the side eye if you ask the invited speaker, you know, not a question that suggests that there's some fraud in their data or anything like that, but just a question that suggests that they might not have controlled for the right thing or something like that. I think it's there's a lot of social pressure that sort of propels us towards acceptance as opposed to checking and questioning and so on.
3: Mm, I think there's there's local cultures where that's still very much the case I think uh, philosophers and economists yes. in particular have a tendency to be vile to each other <laughs> out of a, a kind of reflex <laughs> um, but that, that goes beyond a sort of unnecessary skepticism into a kind of a, a, a culture of uh, tacitly tolerated mutual abuse you're de- 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 describing sort of backing off from the the ability to be critical I, I wonder if as well I've, I've I've, have. This is a thought I actually have had before. I do have them from time to time. As we, <laughs> as we gradually make things more complicated and it, it becomes increasingly more common for younger and younger scientists in more, more diverse places to have access to very powerful analytical tools... There's a huge layer of abstraction that goes on top of what actually needs to be discussed in a format so archaic as saying words in order, the thing that we're indulging in right now. Um, and a lot of the time, remember, the sort of tail end of my academic career. The only question I wanted to ask would be, <laughs> can you email me the code? <laughs> because I, I don't really have the ability to interrogate that here. It's like we've, we've built ourselves this rather odd-walled garden where it's actually very difficult to discuss the mechanics of the things that we're putting in front of people. Um, happily, that's not true for the examples given in the book, um, <laughs> which are much more fruity and fun. Um, <laughs> and look, but with, without me losing, losing my mind and rabbiting on endlessly, please do. Dan has a tendency to do Magic Dan. And Magic Dan's word, because he's read it and he mentions it, he assumes that everyone else psychically picks up all the details. Please explain the matrix thing to everyone who's listening so we can talk about that in context.
2: Sure. So I can start with that. So we call it the possibility grid, and it's a concept that's been used in many other contexts, and it's used in signal detection analysis. It's used for squares. I mean, it's not not anything that we have never seen before, especially if you've ever been involved in science, right? um, But it's a fairly simple idea that if you think of all of the information that's possible as a two-by-two grid, right? And typically, the upper left column, the upper left box of that grid would be the positive cases. So, cases where somebody, a psychic, say, made a prediction and the prediction came true, right? So, they predicted somebody would die and they did. They predicted... Um, somebody would be found and they were, right? So those are the positive predictions or a business tried some strategy and it succeeded, right? Those would be in that upper left square. And that square is where almost all, uh, popular business books focus, right? It's, Hey, look at this person who was successful. Let's look at everything that they did and assume that that's what caused them to be successful. But the problem, of course, is you need to know were the things that they did even associated with their success? And the only way you can do that is to look at the other boxes of the grid. So you need to know um, how many people tried exactly those same sorts of things and failed. How many people didn't try those things and succeeded. And how many people didn't try those things and didn't succeed. And we almost never think about those other sorts of cells, but you need all of them in order to think about you know whether or not somebody's success was actually caused by what they did in their past, or whether it was just luck, or completely unrelated, or maybe even antithetical to what they did. Right? So, um, the the whole issue that we tend to do is we tend to focus on what's right in front of us and not think about all of that missing information, the other sorts of uh, kinds of information that we might not have. Um, yeah, some, so that, that's that's the basic concept. Someone
1: who writes a business book called Good to Great is not going to give you too many examples of bad to worse you know, or average to bankrupt or something like that. But those things all happen too. And they may have done the exact same things that the good to great companies did. And by the way, I just made up that name. Um, that may or may not be an actual book. Uh, and I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's- it's I, I think that we, we accidentally picked an apt name by sort of relabeling a contingency table as a possibility grid, because often you don't even need to count up how many things are in the other cells. You, there's no way of knowing how many things are in the other cells but just thinking about the possibility that there is stuff there is often, I think, enough to make you realize, wait a minute. Like I am only focusing on, you know, the positive examples. In fact, probably the ones that whoever I am dealing with wants me to focus on at that point in time, right? So, just getting to the possibility that there is other stuff can be enough to trigger some, you know, some deeper thought about the decision you are about to make.
3: Yeah, yeah. The the, the the cells are there, but they're they're, they're filled with kind of uh, hypothetical. Information, potentially counterfactuals, whatever else. Um, it, t- what was so- something that popped its head out? Uh, you actually picked up, and I don't think I've ever seen in an academic text or in an academic discussion anywhere, um, anyone pick up and talk about the idea of a pre-mortem. Now, it's someone who had to, uh, it's a very, very briefly, uh, a pre-mortem is, a analysis generally of a business decision, generally of a product decision or a sales decision or a market decision, something where you're making a move into a segment where there's a categorical change in the business process. Premortem is a description written beforehand of what potentially could make that decision go poorly or not as well as uh, it otherwise might or fail spectacularly, etc. And I have had to be, I've been interviewing recently for new jobs and in the exercises that I've given, uh, exercises that I have been given, every single one that contained an exercise where plan this thing hypothetically, which people love to ask you if you've got a managerial kind of job, everyone does that now. And there is this tremendous focus that is starting, especially in very sort of product-driven organizations. They're very uh picking up on the Chris and Dan show here because there is now very much an increased focus in, in these product-led organizations on are you capable of making a prediction about what's going to happen in the future. We expect a lot of things that we try to go to shit because business environments are very complicated. Organizations are very large. A lot of stuff's really expensive and time-consuming. But do you understand why it might? Do you know how to mitigate it? So there's actually, if everything goes completely to hell in a plan that you make, but you predicted why, you kind of get half points. And and, and that's, a, that's a really interesting sort of uh, progression from... The, the, the kind of business equivalent of p-hacking, which is presented as a success uh, at, at all costs and then fail upwards. Um, I've wondered if there's a... If there's, that's, maybe that should be going in pre-registration, you know? if it if it doesn't work if it's a complete wash what will we find out like oh we will find out that this is poorly specified that the scale has bad internal validity uh, we will find out that my ra was drunk all the time i don't know maybe there's a maybe there's a place for us as well when, when i've taught
2: research practices you know teaching how to do a formal pre-registration as completely as possible you know, you often find that you really haven't anticipated all of the ways that you might be flexible and all of the ways that you might misremember what you've done and all the ways you might screw up, right? And all the ways your participants might screw up your data, right? So you don't think about the possibility that, okay, somebody might come into the lab high. So what do you do with your data in that case? Do you have to pre-specify that? You have to think about, you know, what are the words? So we actually will pre-specify that sometimes that, you know, we will evaluate if the person doesn't seem to be attentive or they're falling asleep, we'll evaluate it before looking at their data and make a decision to exclude based on that without having known what they what their data contributions were. And we log that. Um, but that sort of thing, just anticipating things like, okay, you know, you said you're going to counterbalance, but did you explain how? Right? Because so one thing we do in, in my research practices class is um, we assign students to take apart the other person's pre-registration. So assume that they were a malicious replicator. They were going to redo your study using what you said were your methods, but m- do it as poorly as you possibly could, right? And you reveal all of those limitations really quickly.
1: Um, this is that's red teaming, by the way. That's not yeah. that's replication. Red, that's red teaming. I love it.
2: That's yeah. red teaming. Malicious yeah. yeah. <laughs> happening in advance as well, right? So yeah. it's, it's a way of sort of anticipating yeah. the problems that might happen in advance and trying to fix them first.
0: Can you talk a bit more about the red teaming concept?
1: Yeah, red teaming is your you're, red teaming is you're supposed to get someone else, ideally someone who wasn't involved at all in the decision you're making, they have no sunk costs about it, they have no predictions of their own and so on to reevaluate the case and independently and see whether they agree with you. So the most famous example is the uh, Obama administration's decision to uh, undertake the raid that wound up killing Osama bin Laden. And they had been working on this for a long time, obviously, in investi- investing a lot of resources and, and a lot of psychological resources in, in the idea that they had a chance you know, to, to get him if they did this raid. But following a practice that is sometimes used in the intelligence community and probably should be used more widely elsewhere, they brought in a team of different analysts who weren't really in any way involved with making the case that, that bin Laden was there at this house in, in uh, Pakistan. Uh, to evaluate the evidence themselves, and I believe they came up with something like a forty to sixty percent probability that he was there. And you know, for for a red team who's sort of charged with you know questioning you know the the official the official plan, that's probably pretty good agreement. Um, at least it was good enough for the powers that be to decide to to carry on you know to carry on with the. Uh, with a mission. But the critical thing for for like avoiding deception right is to get someone who's who's disinterested and who it hasn't been not going down the same psychological pathway as you yourself to take a look at it. Um, and there were we we found some examples in you know that we that we've written about where, people sort of accidentally got red teamed out of falling into scams because one of their friends walked in on their conversation with the scammer and said, you know, that guy is scamming you. And they had not thought of that beforehand. And they were able to get out. I know, conversely, cases where people did get such independent advice, chose to ignore it and wound up, you know, um, and, and wound up. So it is possible, you know, to, I think, to improve the uh, the outcomes with a little bit of red teaming. Dan, when you said that you wanted to pre-register whether someone came into the lab high, I actually thought you were referring to like the, the researchers, not the, not the participants. No, no. Well, that, that, <laughs> that, that would so. be
2: a different kind of issue. <laughs> All <It'd> be- <laughs> data will be
1: analyzed by a sober graduate student. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, honestly, that, honestly, what I thought, because of course, I don't have a lab that people walk into anymore. Like it's coming to the Qualtrics survey you know, high or something like that. And often we don't really have a good way of checking, you know, checking on that.
3: What do you do do all day now, Chris? (laughs) Uh,
1: When I'm not talking to folks like you, uh, I am a professor at a thing called Geisinger Health System, which is an integrated health system in Pennsylvania. Um, We have uh, a medical school and also a research institute, and the research institute has academic ranks, and we have um, grad students and grant funding. Well, sorry, we don't have grad students. Why did I say that? We have postdocs, we have research assistants, we have uh, grant funding, and we do... Sort of research on anything that's health related so mine is of course behavioral science that's health related we um, uh, we we study uh, you know various topics under that umbrella um plus we have a uh, behavioral insights team that tries to help uh, people throughout the system make better decisions um in a variety of ways. Um, so that's my yeah that that's my uh, day job, I guess
3: nice, makes sense. Right, let's not get sidetracked <laughs> into uh into my rather high opinion of uh, 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 local sort of state health systems in the U.S. as an alternative to the big box insurance methods. That seems wildly irrelevant. I don't know what box of our decision matrix that would have to go in. Probably the uh, one that's off the page uh, rather close to the bin. What about proper question, Dan, that you've written down?
0: Uh, I want to talk about the exact fishy test Many of us oh, yeah. are familiar <laughs> with uh, with f- th- this is great many of us are familiar with that uh, Fisher's exact test um, but uh, I, th- I thought this uh, exact fishy test was really cool and some of the implications of that can, can you walk us through this yeah, so
2: this isn't this isn't ours. Um, I'm blanking on his first name. It's McCartan, I believe, is McCartan his last Humphreys, name. McCartan Humphreys, I and think, is the guy's name. Humph- yeah. Yeah, yeah, McCartan Humphreys, right, right, at Columbia. Um, so this is just a, a simple app um, that asks you to enter 10 numbers, right, 10 random numbers, and it tells you how unlikely that set of 10 numbers is. So uh, it does things like saying, well, you know, you entered 22 and 12 and 14 and 26, and it will say, okay, there were too many twos. There are more twos than you would expect by chance, and if you run the calculation on how likely you are to have that many twos in your numbers, um, that would be unlikely. So it's fishy, right? But of course, you can do this for ones, twos, threes, fives, two-digit numbers, one-digit numbers, odd numbers, prime numbers.
3: Prime numbers, round numbers, right. yeah, um, numbers numbers that, are, that have a lot of factors. Um, yeah. Yeah, numbers numbers that have sort of uh uh, palindromes. Let's let's do it right now. Let's do it right now. I'm (laughs) gonna put. I haven't haven't fully tested
2: it because you'd have to kind of back, you know, reverse engineer it to figure out what all of the criteria it could use are. But the whole the whole point is that if you have a set of data and you're actively looking for something that seems fishy about it, you can find something that seems fishy about it, and it's it's a real danger when, say, we we have a case where we're we're highly suspicious of misconduct, right? In, in the data. And you can kind of go in and there are a huge number of possible ways you can look at those data to find one thing that's amiss, right? Or two things that are amiss. And if you have enough, a small enough set of data and enough parameters you can look at, you're going to find things that are statistically unlikely just because that will happen by chance, right? In a lot of small numbers, right? If you only have like 10 numbers, there are going to be some odd, odd, uh, consistencies there. Right, Not because there was anything malicious, you get them with completely random numbers. So James, are you trying it with random numbers? Or?
3: Yeah, I just I just popped open a random.org and I just fed uh, 10 integers from uh, 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 it, it numbers between 1 and 100, 48, mm-hmm. 13, uh, 11, 59, 17, 366, 91, 20, 72. These are clearly not random numbers. Take a look at the sequence. You'll see the number of times that one appears in the sequence is five. The expected number from a random process is 2.1. How odd is this? Uh, Guess what I've got? P equals (laughs) 0.0504. And we, and we round that up to statistically significant. Oh, yes. <laughs> Too many it, it, ones. It's
2: spooning with point oh five. yeah many,
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's as as we uh, we coined the euphemism a while ago. St- uh, significantly adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> Was it a, a, a j- adjacently significant. It doesn't. Oh man. It's that's 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 good fun. You can if you have enough rules for something like that. Obviously, that's a really good way to teach um, the, the sort of intuitions behind p-hacking.
2: Yeah. Well, um, and it's also, you know, it, it teaches kind of the how much care you have to take if you're if you're trying to document statistically that something was unlikely due to misconduct or something else. I mean, as, as you guys know full well, right, this, this is something you have to be really careful about because you don't want to falsely accuse somebody of doing something fishy if it's one of many, many, many ways you could have analyzed the data. Now, of course, if there's enough data and it's weird enough. It's really unlikely to happen, and this, this kind of really, really, really unlikely is
1: yeah. This kind of stuff doesn't just happen in, in in scientific research either. I'll give you an example from cheating from a completely different area, which is chess. So, you if, if the words anal beads mean anything to you, they might. They might well. Well, they mean a yeah, lot well, to Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they they might they might be a reference oh, a to Mag- a-
0: <laughs> as a Magnus Carlson fan. Now that I'm in Norway, yeah, I'm you're in doctor, Norway. Uh, yes, exactly. I'm, yeah, I, d- I didn't I didn't used to think much about chess, but but chess is on prime time here. Yeah, when uh, when there's when Magnus is playing it's it's on it's on primetime television Yeah, of and course, of course the, the 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 subject of anal beads had, had come up
1: <laughs> yeah i'm sure that was Quite on primetime i'm sure that was on primetime television too well the, the connection oh, is
0: that they say everything here yeah the
1: the, the connection <laughs> is that in last september he played a game against a guy named Hans Nieman, who's an american junior player about 19 years old and he lost this tournament game against Hans Nieman and quit the tournament the day after and basically accused Hans Nieman of cheating against him and there was speculation as to how a grandmaster could cheat against another grandmaster in a tournament with cameras around and directors and so on. And, you know, someone tweeted that you could have vibrating anal beads as a source of computer computer advice on what move to make. And I think that's highly unlikely in this case. But once the seed had been planted in people's minds that Hans Niemann was a cheater, you then saw all these sort of self-appointed data sleuths from the chess world going out and doing their version of an exact fishy test on the public record of Hans Niemann's games. So they would look at all of his games, you know, and Grandmaster games are in databases and you can download them and you can run them through computers and analyze them. And they would find these suspicious patterns like when his games are being broadcast live, he performs better than when his games are not being broadcast live. Or if you run his games through this database, you see that his moves agree with a computer, you know, this percentage of the time. And they were barely even doing any appropriate baseline comparisons, let alone computing P values or anything like that. But they were doing exactly this exercise of hunting around for patterns premised on the notion that there's something fishy going on here, which was almost entirely based on Magnus Carlsen's, you know, uh, public, you know, very, very public, uh, you know, words and deeds. So the exact fishy test turns up all over the place in different guises, I think, um, as, and it can sort of lead you to think that cheating is happening, maybe when it's not actually really happening, right? Which is it could be a big problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, some some players play better in the in the you know in the spotlight, yeah. and you know, yeah, grant- I, was, I was going to say,
3: yeah. surely you, you know if you're you're in a high school auditorium or whatever, and there's twelve hundred people in anorak staring daggers at you, making sure you don't mess up with the bishop. <laughs> um, it's good. Some some people have performance effects that go up, and some people have performance effects that go down. Um, I saw it's something. This is very interesting. It's a little little while ago. They said, "Oh, chess got worse during the uh the pandemic," and someone analyzed that and said, "Well, actually, it did get worse when everyone moved to online play." and the interesting thing is, in-person tournaments are much better controlled than online play because anything can happen in your house, but tournaments are rigidly maintained environments of uh, you know, strategic quiet you know even even if it's uh even if it's not a, a particularly flashy one they have an environment that's expected yeah. and they're no very rarely is yeah yeah no <laughs> kittens and there's never a bin man outside your door you know banging the cans together they're not digging up the street the neighbor's not playing drill music <laughs> uh, it, it's 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 actually much better controlled and there was this weird learning effect that happened as as well and the reason that i believe that it was not fishy, is because I think they analysed literally all the chess data that was available, which is something that you can do. Which really surprises me in your case, because this sounds quite serious. Look, asshole computers aside, <laughs> it sounds like a really serious sort of thing, right? It's the fact that you've got at the highest level of whatever. Like if it was a, is a boxing tournament, you know, and we we finally get uh, we finally get uh, the the. Uh, the you know uh, uh, one belt holder fighting another belt holder for all the belts and it's all very fancy and someone's actually cheating it would be like it could be it could be dangerous to be around that everything would kick off this is the highest possible amount of corruption you can have is the world champion getting the shit kicked out of them for no reason and on that basis i mean why didn't they analyze say the top 500 players versus allegedly dodgy person like uh, it's just, it's, it's totally insufficient.
1: Well, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you two answers. One is there, there ought to be an official investigation, right? Where like experts, right? Actual experts who study this stuff for a living and maybe have published papers about it and so on are the, you know, are the authorities. And those people did get involved and they did do some of that analysis. One of them is named Ken Regan. He's a computer science professor and an international master of chess. Uh, and he has been monitoring cheating, you know, for years um, for the International Chess Federation, and he said he could not find any evidence of cheating, but it almost, uh, and official investigations have not finished yet, perhaps because Hans Niemann is suing Magnus Carlsen, and there's a lot of sort of extracurricular activity going on, but that doesn't stop a lot of people from deciding they were going to do it their own way, right? and in the vacuum of like official information. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times we choose who to believe, right? Like the experts can come out and say one thing, but, but people who don't like Hans Neiman or fans of Magnus Carlsen or just have whatever, they can follow whatever supposed experts they want, right? So um, yeah, I mean, I think it was done in that way, like you outlined, right? Like comparing to appropriate baselines and all of that and actually looking at uh, and Ken has high thresholds for sort of accusing someone of cheating, right? He doesn't go p, p. 05, right? Like he's wise to that. He's like, you know, p of ten to the minus six or something like that before he says like, we really believe that, <laughs> like you know, that stuff. this is, you know, yeah, right, exactly. Kind of like, kind of like, you know, particle physics standards or something like that, you know, which which you could argue is that the right threshold and so on. But it, like, um, there are people who have good procedures for this, and a lot of people just don't pay attention to them.
3: As someone who's had to make that decision, I think it's better off not. You're better off not using a threshold. I think you're better off calibrating the way that you pursue it to the strength of the evidence that you've got. So we were looking at the this binomial probability of something happening once um, some years ago, and I think it ended up being the p value was about Avogadro's number. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, uh, ten to the minus thirty two or something. <laughs> um and at that at that point in time you get to get out of bed but um no this is I mean and it's interesting because you covered quite a lot of um of, of vintage academic dodgy stories throughout the entire manuscript um Diedrich Staple got a look in uh Sato um and uh all the work that uh Alice and Avenal and uh, the the rest of the cats. And yeah, the Carlisle
2: test. Yeah.
3: Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. And John and John Carlisle and mm-hmm. it's it's a very interesting world, this. And I think there's one there's one bit about it that people don't appreciate, and it's the fact that if you get to play this because because there's a social currency involved for you as well as the person who's making the claim, there is a tremendous downward pressure on you saying anything that's completely untoward. So if I did something like that, I'd probably be able to do that once. And then after that, I don't think anyone would listen to me ever again. And they probably shouldn't, really, when it, when it comes right down to it it's It's interesting because its this and this is obviously why it, like there's a, a tendency here to, to to throw incoherent anonymous allegations overboard immediately um, you can have to be you can have very coherent anonymous allegations those make sense or uh, th- those that come from someone who has a, a reputation or the skill for being able to do the work but it can't be both um, you get to just discount those. Straight away was that they lack a, they lack social proof and they lack the internal coherence. Uh, it's it's did you I I can't remember because it's two hundred and fifty pages of of all the naughty things that people did over a very long period of time. Did you put in the story about the fella who detected Bernie Madoff years and years and years before he actually got into trouble? With the SEC? We,
1: we didn't really go over that in detail because it's kind of in a lot of other sources, but uh, we, we, we did definitely discuss the fact that one problem with his, uh, with his performance, which probably should have been evident to more people looking at it, they didn't need to necessarily be Harry Markopoulos, who's the guy you're referring to, who did a lot of mathematical analysis. You didn't need to be him to see that a strategy that was going on for 10, 12, 13 years. That was almost never having a down month, let alone a down year over that time, couldn't be realistic. Um, you can do a lot of math and simulation and so on to prove it and to attach exact probabilities, but to have enough doubts that maybe you shouldn't have your money with that guy wouldn't take, you know, wouldn't take all that. So he he definitely did the work, figure that out, um, and figured it out repeatedly, and tried to warn people and uh, even his business partners. We did mention that. One of his business partners who was also in on this investigation with him tried to warn some of some people he knew about it. And some of them just sort of shot him down and said, I you know, I know, I know your heart's in the right place, but you don't understand, Bernie would never screw us. So, like, you know, some of these investors just had such a strong commitment to, you know, to Madoff and his integrity, which they had no evidence for, except for he was friends with their friends, he was relatives of their relatives, he was a well-known name, and so on. Um that uh, they ignored, you know, fairly, you know, fairly strong advice, uh, you know, to the to the contrary.
2: Well, people people often ignore this sort of thing too, right? So that that excessive consistency is not something you tend to look at all that much, and it's the source of you know the Carlisle test and Avenel's work on on Sato and all the others, right? Is that here you have a whole bunch of baseline measures, and you've got supposedly random assignment to two different groups, and you don't expect those to always be even on every single measure right you expect just by variation that sometimes one group will have bigger scores in something and sometimes the other group on the baseline but people who want their data to be really clean like the idea that oh the two groups were identical to start with they were consistent they were always the same so that you can say any improvements are just due to what we our intervention and that's just not what random data look like, right? So that, that's how that no, test no, works. Not,
3: not at all. And it's one, yeah. one of the things it wasn't. It wasn't the fact that it, the, of that that originally pushed Staple down the stairs. That was people, mm-hmm. um, but it was certainly a contributing factor as they started to look to it. There was an intrinsic lack of variation, um, which I, I, I suppose I, I think people who do this work think of that as like the actually the simplest form of being able to f- of fabricate something, like the, the, the complete lack of something where there, there should be an intrinsic variation and there just isn't, um, which is uh, the, the next level of complication is probably uh, intrinsic noise with patterns within the noise. And then the third level is, is probably something that's rule-governed but difficult to discover. Um, which you also see on that base. And at that point in time, frankly, it's, it's easier to find out that someone's left a formula in the Excel sheet where they should have been timing the tire in <laughs> to try and detect something like that.
2: And, you know, a lot of the frauds that have been caught and kind of proven at this point were ones where they just people just didn't understand, you know, sampling error and how noise should work. Right. And it's just not intuitive if you haven't thought through the process. And I think that's a problem in, in the field in general, right? That a lot of people don't understand that there's random variability. You sometimes get significant results by chance. And, you know, just because it was 0.05 once doesn't mean that was true at that moment and that time and for that study. Right. And people have this misconception that, you know, what I've observed is the truth for that for that sample, as opposed to the truth plus a lot of noise of some sort that might have worked in their favor.
1: Variability is like so shockingly counterintuitive to people. That's sort of, and that's been known, of course, for a long time in psychology. We didn't, we didn't discover that, but that I think is is at the root of why we talk so much about consistency being an, an attractor for you know for that that fraudsters use. Um, they may not use it deliberately, but they've sort of discovered that if you give you know if you if you give something consistent, people sort of don't ask questions. Whereas you know, one of the simplest data frauds that I can think of right now is from the infamous automobile mileage study where there were all these cars that supposedly had reported mileage by the owners. And I think the mileage was distributed in a uniform fashion from zero to 50,000 or 2000 to 50,000 or something like that, which is like the most fundamental lack of variability you can. You can you can imagine in a way. Well, I suppose if everyone drove exactly the same number of miles, that would be even less variability. But the idea that just as many people drive ten thousand miles as fifty thousand miles in a year seems sort of fundamentally absurd.
3: Yeah, it's like the the difference was like x plus rand y, something like that. Yeah. Um, see that is and and that see it's it's interesting. You just said that was simple, right? It is a simple rule, but. Something like that is a long way down, in my opinion and experience, the, the sort of trust veil that we see when something like this is in front of us. If the data is one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, or, or something similar, it's it's reasonably straightforward. Or if we have uh, blocks of responses that are obviously copied and pasted, a little bit harder to detect. But the moment you're up to something like that, you actually have to inspect it. And That is a tremendous. There's a tremendous amount of value in doing that because that's that's the point in time past which, like the majority of the time, most reviewed work doesn't get. Is it the exact point in time where that stuff? Because that's a very simple rule, government process. And if I showed any of you the distribution to that, you'd go, "Hang on a second, that's a bit odd." Um, In fact, that's quite a lot odd because you know exactly what you're looking at. It's not immediately apparent. Um,
2: and it added some randomness to make it harder to spot immediately, so you have to infer the rule, right? To yeah, realize that yeah, there's something. If, it, off. if
3: it's uniform, uniform randomness, even in, in and of itself, you, you do actually have to know what you are looking for. Um, and it is it is amazing just how uh, uh, looking at this the, the other day, writing something, saw a paragraph, twenty separate references, and it's all laid out. Everything's all these very impressive sounding names, and even now. You know, a very long way down the sort of like the sceptical slippery dip. I was looking at this paragraph, going, "Oh, it must be quite good," uh, but it, it wasn't. It was all shit. Um, it was all it was it was all very bad, and you could figure that out by checking the first couple of references, and it just got worse from there. But by itself, we we have we are trained to. In the the same way that, and you you cover this extensively, the same way that we have to have normal intrinsic trust in social situations or we become unbearable, we are forced to read science with an equivalent kind of frame so we can actually get something done. And that is the veil behind which a tremendous amount of bullshit slips. Now, moving into sort of editorializing at this point, um, and, you know, also I figured that you're probably going to do so many podcasts, I might as well just monopolize the conversation while I had four <laughs> cups of coffee, you know? <laughs> but I, 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 do, I did actually want to ask something and stop talking, and I'm not serious about the coffee. I've had far too much. Um, I don't know the Karen Ruggiero. 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 Mm-hmm. Ruggiero. Okay. So you say that happened in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I was in high school. So stop laughing, Chris. (laughs) I was was in high school. What's all that about? What happened?
2: So uh, Karen was a faculty person at Harvard when I was the faculty person there and when Chris was uh, in grad school there as well. Um, She was about a year ahead of me on the junior faculty non-tenure track thing that they have at Harvard or they used to anyway. Well, it's Um, tenure
1: track, but the odds of getting tenure are just low.
2: And there's no promise that they'll actually put you up for a tenure track. Yeah. Any but anyway, yeah. Um, so Karen was probably the hardest working person that I knew there. I mean, she was. You know, this was kind of in my first years as faculty, so I was working the twelve hour day thing, and um, which I don't recommend for anybody. Uh, but you know, I was getting there at eight and going home at you know eight or nine, and she was there before me and left after me uh, most days. She was the only one car in the lot when I would get there. Um, and so it seemed like incredibly hardworking, incredibly industrious. You know, she would plan for a ten-minute talk for the department like three months in advance and have it perfect slides, everything polished. Um, and she had been doing um, you know studies uh, that were you know highly visible studies of sort of things like stereotype threat um, and looking at you know race effects in in that context. And uh, hers was a case that was caught by whistleblowing. Um, some people became suspicious, uh, that she had collected her data, you know, gotten very hard to get data of very quickly. Um, and that was, that was worrisome because, you know, you, you can't do that that easily as you, as you guys have encountered many times. You know, if, if something takes a lot of hours and time to do, you can't do it in two weeks. Um, so people started becoming suspicious and then there was some, uh, more whistleblowing that happened kind of behind the scenes. Um, Eventually, she copped to everything. So um, she uh, had apparently been. What, what she would do is her her students would go and collect some data, or they would send her their data. Um, and this was not just for the studies that were impossibly quick, but for a lot all of the studies. Um, they'd collect the data, they'd send it to her, and she would produce a beautiful spreadsheet, everything perfectly laid out. But she just made up the numbers right? and would send it back to them um, to analyze and. That was kind of consistent with her personality. She was very obsessive, right? To the point of you know, making sure all of the computer desktops in her students' offices were organized right. Um, so everything was in its place, very precise. So I think her students just took this as, this is just you know Karen being Karen. She wants everything perfect and is very careful. And they, they were students in her lab. They didn't necessarily know what was going on or know any better. It's hard to know. Um, But in any case, uh, it seems that most of her work dating back to her dissertation was probably fabricated um, in that way. And what was interesting to me was that it was almost completely covered up, right? I mean, there was an investigation. She admitted to everything, but I don't think there was even a story in the Boston Globe about it. Um, At the time, she had already moved to Texas um, and was like a year away from tenure uh, when this broke, right? So there was an investigation at Harvard, but she was no longer there. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually a case that I use in my classes because we've got papers that have been retracted. We know that they were fraudulent, but there hasn't really been, you know, as far as I know, an analysis of the individual data that went into it because she admitted to it. Um, and they you know, the, the papers themselves weren't analyzed. So it's actually an exercise I use in my class. That's kind of like that fishy test that we talked about, have my students take a look at the the paper and see, can you see anything in the paper itself that raises red flags and there are some things right there, there are a couple of columns and tables that have all the same numbers just with 0.05 added to the ends of them just kind of obviously wrong um, there's variability that's very low right but the strength of those findings made it very hard for other people to publish in that literature right that if you didn't get those strong results well you have to account for you know these results that are so much stronger
0: one thing that I found very interesting about the book is this idea of asking more questions that if you're not sure about something, ask more questions. And it made me think about that the peer review process that we have isn't very well suited to that. We want to get things through, you know, two rounds, maybe three rounds of peer review, but that's not very conducive to asking questions or if something comes up, asking another question. Um, we tend to, um, you know, make a bit of fun of, of, of the Frontiers p- 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 publisher um, but their peer review system is actually pretty good in that it actually does allow you to ask questions and have more of a conversation with the authors of if your if you're the peer reviewer. So that sort of thing actually makes you it g- gives you opportunity to actually ask more questions. Whereas the 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 the, the prevailing system for, for most publishers is ask all your questions in one go, and if they do something back, like it's just this idea of having you know three, four, five rounds at least within my subfield is just is is just not there. So I like this idea, but beyond asking for the data what sort of other questions should we be asking if we're not sure or if we want to get to the bottom or or, or to verify what's been done within a particular study
2: I would say first of all it's not it's not necessarily something that's going to come out of the review process right I mean it's you know the review process can detect some errors but you know there, there's just limited resources if you're if you're Trying to publish at the same time that you're reviewing lots of papers takes a lot of time, and you know, as as you know, doing digital forensics on a on a paper, even with the data, is a huge amount of time and effort. And you know, it, it for to expect that to happen through the review process seems unlikely. So, you know, the the question that I, I think the the real approach that has the promise of working is doing something that's preemptive as opposed to retroactive, right? So, trying to trying to find the problems in every single case is going to be impossible. There's just too many papers. But requiring some sort of rigor up front so that at least the sort of obvious kinds of errors get caught before before they even get to the reviewers you know, has more promise of, st- of staving something off. So I'm not, I'm not sure that asking questions at the, in that that later stage is really the solution in that case. It's asking how can we set up the system so that it makes these sorts of problems harder and harder to actually have them appear in the first place. I don't know, Chris, did you want to?
1: Yeah, we. I mean, in in advising people to ask more questions, we're of course advising them to ask questions where they might have some possibility of understanding the answer, or you know, whether, whether it matters. Sometimes, though, you just don't have the expertise to ask the right questions, and I'm not sure even the peer review process, as it's currently structured, has the necessary expertise to ask and understand. The, the right questions in many cases. Sometimes in medical journals, for example, there's a statistical reviewer um, who actually has real expertise in statistics and, and so on more so than let's say your average psychology professor or average neuroscience professor or whatever. I don't really know of any evidence or data on how much of an effect that has on improving the quality and replicability and non-fraudulence of published results when those people are involved. But uh I think the ultimate solution might be some kind of independent organization that reviews uh, papers, you know, not necessarily before they're published, but at least, you know, as they become high profile or something like that to sort of see see if you can, you know, see if we can pick the the big, you know, the big pollutants out of the river before they, you know, before they spread too far and, uh, and so on. I really think it needs to be independently funded. It needs to have people who are experts in that kind of work. Not people whose that's like their, you know, evening hobby as opposed to their, you know, their their day job, because most of our day jobs is like generating results that fit our predictions and forgetting to be a scientist and so on. So then expecting us to turn around and, and be doing that at the same time with other people's papers is a little bit of a lot to ask. For, for a lot of for a lot of people, but it could be a yeah, it could be a separate a, function a, in the
3: system. It's a lot of a lot to ask.
1: <laughs> well, I'm I'm preaching to the converted in some ways here, but I think yeah. it needs to be. <laughs> it, so, some billionaire needs to come and say, you know, this is a real problem in scientific publishing, and and, and fund it for like a hundred million dollars at least, or something like that.
3: One element of that solution that I think is particularly important and it's the fact that I mean, this is it's not very nice to say this, but some results matter. And I'm not going to say there's lots of results that don't matter. I'm just going to say they matter less. Um, there's medical papers that can kill people. Like two weeks later, clinical practice changes, dead people down the corridor, right? There's there's papers that can uh, immediately overturn policy or change people's mind, push up, push very important discussions one way or the other. And if you're going to actually audit things, you're sort of like the hierarchical suggestion that you've just made unfortunately it has to be part of it you can't audit everyone or the irs would be the size of the tax base you know it's just uh, you, you you can't you can't do that but you do have to yeah independent professional properly funded and focused on the prevention of harm, or what you call the big pollutants. I've oh, got some high, n- not necessarily hypothetical names in mind for those uh, pollutants of size.
2: Yeah, but ideally, ideally with some element of randomness too, right? Because oh, as soon as you yeah, set yeah, it up yeah. as these are the important things, then you know what people will do, right? They'll they'll make their paper sound not important until it's published and then release yep. the press release that changes policy.
3: Yep. 100%, right? So hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Definitely, but I mean to, to be able to be able to do that, to be able to apply that. You're talking about trying to detect something. If it, like, there's a useful between subjects macro level data for something like that, you have to review quite a lot of them to be able to ensure that you have any ability to calculate what a base rate is. Because otherwise, there's no point. Like, oh, we did 60 and we found one. Well, what the hell does that tell you? It's one in 60. No, it's not. It's like somewhere between one in 300 and one in 10 which is useless.
0: We're going to wrap up the episode. Uh, Dan and Chris, thanks so much for joining us. I, I, uh, everyone, uh, go buy. Go buy Nobody's Fool. I, I truly enjoyed it. I think when, when it comes to the Venn diagram of, of science books where it's like clearly written and enjoyable to read and factually correct and, and based on solid evidence and not overstretching the truth for the sake of a good story, this is one of those few books which actually is square in the middle. Um, I'll, and go, we'll, I'll go
3: a little further than that, Where you be a nice, Stan? I think of a lot of stuff that scientists actually experience and talk about, the stuff that we know, the stuff that we talk about, the stories that are important to us. I think of a lot of, a lot of that, even in the age of popular science, still comes across as sort of secret knowledge. And this is one of the few, there's not a lot of books like that at all, where you actually get to know the re- it's not, it's not a narrative built around the scientific ideas. It is the actual stuff that we do. It is from our world and yet it's actually legible. Um, which is pretty rare. Uh, and you cover, and obviously, like, I've better, I've, you know. There's there's so many individual mentions of stuff that's come up on this podcast in particular, and you know I had some very very small quibbles, and I'm pretty much all quibble. So, <laughs> you've, I think honestly, I think you've done amazing. Um, I'm very glad that you twisted uh, our arms to read it honestly, <laughs> and I and, and and I know I'm good because I'm in it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> can can we can we write can we take that quote actually legible and put it on our Amazon page or something like
2: that? Yeah. Oh God, yeah. actually Please legible, do. James Evans. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, 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 yeah. Feel feel free. I'll get you. I'll get you. I'll get you a better one. I usually
1: have uh, a lot yeah. more quibbles, James. James. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Gold, absolute gold. We're going to put all the links to uh, to, to, to where the book can be bought online and to um, for more information if you want to find out more about Dan and Chris and the work that they do. But thanks for joining us, and we'll be back again very soon with the new episode of Everything Hurts. See you everyone. Bye. Thanks, it's been great. Bye.